But first, a longtime Langley politician is joining the race for mayor of the, of the township there. Rich Coleman announced this morning that he'll be running for the township uh, that Langley, of Langley's top job. He represented Fort Langley, Aldergrove, and Langley East in the B.C. legislature for 24 years. You'd think he'd had enough. And during the time, he held a variety of roles, including leader of the opposition of the B.C. Liberals, caucus whip, deputy premier, and solicitor general. So that's quite a resume. Rich joins us on the show now. Hey, how you doing? Not too bad. <laughs> I think this is a bit of a surprise. What are you thinking? Why? Why would you get back into politics just when you're out? You know, I've been out for a couple of years, a mm-hmm. bit over two, over two years, right? And I found when I left, I was watching my local area, and I'm so I love this community so much. Yeah. And I was just sitting there and thinking, you know, there's a couple of things that need to be done in politics in BC. I think. One of them is we need to attract some of the next generation so they will actually be mentored so they can become the mm-hmm. leaders of the future. Mm-hmm. And I was approached there when, when Jack Froze decided not to run for mayor by some folks, and we got thinking about it. My wife and I talked about it, and I said, you know, she just said, you know, I, I just think for you because you just like people and you want to give back all the time that you should try it. So that led to other kind of conversations, yeah. and I started to you know, attract a team and build a thing and all that. And I'm really excited about it, George, because I, I think, you know, I think my community could become the place where we could show people how you can actually do affordable <laughs> home ownership, yeah. how you can improve rentals and stuff, because I've done it, you know, but I, could, I think I could, at a local level, we can really make some great things happen, show people how the, you know, emergency services, firefighters and police properly funded can work together and how policing and its outreach can be different as far as successes are concerned because I know that can happen. I know I've worked with people to do that in the past. And it's really about also like smart development in my community, planning, and and actually focused on the right stuff. And taking care of the people who live here who have concerns about little traffic, things like that. Let's get it fixed. And yeah, I'll get it fixed. A lot of mayoral candidates should think about that across the region. <laughs> get those kinds of things. I, know I grew up in Langley, so I'm very familiar with the area. And, uh, yeah. you know, when I was a kid in the 70s, there was so much, you know, these three-story walk-ups, you know, small buildings that were affordable rental housing, affordable housing. Uh, it was a big deal in Langley. And my grandmother was in the senior center there that was done yeah. by the Lions Club. Uh, you know, Langley was at the forefront yeah. back in those days in the 60s and 70s. And, and then uh, do you think it's kind of... Yeah, I, yeah. So you think you could change Very that? Very much so. Well, I think so. I mean, I, I, I did, uh, you know, as a volunteer and doing, helping societies, a number of family and seniors projects like the ones you're talking about, the Lions back before yeah. I ever went into public life uh, with Kinsmen and Lions. And, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, those projects are great. And, but it's partnerships and it's working to people, bringing right. them together. And you have to work those things without partisanship. You said affordable. It's just got to be. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. You said affordable ownership, but affordable rental is a big yeah. deal. And obviously, Vancouver, uh, having myself been on city council here, is a big issue in Vancouver along with homelessness. And when you look at some of the yeah. data across the region, a lot of the communities, including Langley, have not really picked up the slack where Vancouver has been taking a heavy toll of the homelessness and, and the housing in this in this region. Are you willing well, I, to step I, up I, on that? I, I think Langley has, though. Yeah. I mean, I think Langley, basically, when we built the Gateway of Hope, which was really everybody around B.C. in the time were saying we don't want shelters and supportive housing. And in Langley, the community came together with the Rotary Club and us, you know, the governments and and said, let's make this something positive. Let's build mm-hmm. this and get it, and we'll go raise money for it versus saying we don't want it. And that's been a very successful project here. Mm-hmm. And we've done other things like that here. I think what it is is we we do. We have two very, very highly effective uh, therapeutic communities here that have helped people with addictions. For One of them for 40 years has had 8,000 men go through it. Very quietly, very supported. I've supported it for years, and everybody does, and, and help people. And, and I think that, uh, you know, sometimes it's, uh, you know, sometimes the really good stuff that gets done isn't something that makes the news. True. That's true. You've started a political party. Uh, what's the reason behind that? That seems to be the, happening everywhere now. It used to be a Vancouver-only thing, but now well, it seems like happening everywhere. Well, the challenge is this, George, is if you can pool resources and pool people, mm-hmm. you can run a better campaign for people who want to actually seek public life. There's spending limits for a councillor in Miami of about $42,000 if you want to run for council. $42,000 to try and 
get your name out in, in recognition to 150,000 people, pretty difficult. Yeah. But if you pool that and you have a message together and you work on a platform and you're a team of people that you know really want to do for the community, you can pool those resources and be more effective. And I think that's why you see these teams of people coming together under electoral associations because mm -hmm. it's it is it is unfortunately the best way to do it because you know otherwise somebody new it's always incumbency is really strong and there's no chance to get like new blood right. on the council yeah that's true you were very high profile bc liberal uh, you know, BC Liberals, not what they used to be. You know, the last election was not so great. I was out there I, you know, on the doorsteps. You know, people were pretty angry still with the BC Liberals. Do you think the baggage uh, that some of that, uh, and it's not even against you potentially, just a party, uh, will be a negative on your campaign? I don't think so. This is municipal politics. It's about my community. I'm running for my community. Mm -hmm. And I can bring the extra... The connections and the experiences and the ability to get things done to my community, as I have with the Langley Event Center schools, parks, and all kinds of things I did when I was an MLA, overpasses and traffic and all of that. And I know how to bring people together to get mm -hmm. those things done. I think, you know, there, you know, there, there's in, 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 on the provincial side, there's more a bit of partisanship uh, at the local level, even though as an MLA, whether it be an opposition or government. I was always able to work with the other side of the house and work with all the yeah. people, school boards and municipal councils in my community to get things done. And I think if, if you focus on what's best for your community and the people you serve, you'll be successful. Well, all the best in your campaign, Rich. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think providing, you know, doing a service to your community is always a good thing. So good luck. Thank you, George. I appreciate it. George Afflicken for Jill today, and I'll be here all next week as well. And I hope you're enjoying the day and having an enjoyable listen to our show. All right, so yesterday I received uh, an email from LastPass, which houses all my passwords. And I think a lot of people, it's the number one password sort of host or you know, supplier of passwords, like you know, software that exists on Earth. Uh, and they said they'd been hacked. They were saying, oh, it's not a problem. But there, we saw that there was something suspicious going on, uh, and but we think it's all good. But this is the kind of thing you're like, oh, my God, what? What? Uh, they've been hacked, but apparently it was unsuccessful. Uh, but joining me to discuss this and other tech stuff is uh, Andy Barr. He's a technology and digital lifestyle expert at HandyAndyMedia.com. Handy, Andy is also a weekly contributor on The Shift with Shane Hewitt. Hey, Andy. Hey George, how are you? Good. So this was like this is the kind of email you don't want. <laughs> like I was, you know, your first sentence, you're like, what, what? I mean, what happened? Do we? This is like I can't imagine, you know, how stressful working at LastPass must be. But this must have been like a nightmare for LastPass. Absolutely, yeah. George. There, there. You know, people are literally putting all of their eggs in this case, eggs mm -hmm. being passwords, into one basket. And so LastPass's whole company is is built upon the encryption and the protection of those passwords that you um, put inside LastPass. And this is a paid service. So mm -hmm. for a family plan, it's about $5 a month. Uh, it's used by more than three, 33 million people around the world. 100,000 businesses also use it wow. to manage passwords. So the, the entire company, George, is built on the protection of this data. Yeah. They did get a data breach. And here's what happened. A hacker gained access to the developing environment of LastPass. And they did it through a compromised developer account. So they found you know, this Some is kind guy. of ironic, the, the, the password of a developer to get into the LastPass wow. developing environment. And so what that hacker ended up doing was taking the source code um, from there and some proprietary technical information, but they didn't actually get into the vault where all the passwords are encrypted. So that's why you got that email and they said in that email, you don't have to do anything. And that just shows you <laughs> that they're not lying, George, because if they did get compromised, yeah, they would tell you change right. your master password, but they didn't do that. So I think you could rest easy knowing that your passwords are protected. I know. I thought that was unusual because you get these emails from service providers on occasion and they always seem to say, change your password. So I thought, wow, that is confident uh, to say that. <laughs> it's like, wow, okay. I, I mean, I was, I was on one hand freaked out, but on the other hand, I'm like, okay, well, you know, that's pretty confident. But then I'm thinking, are you sure? So, I mean, the, the, I can't imagine. What, do you even have any idea what protocols? I mean, how? 
I know when I go into my last pass, I have to enter my password, then I have to use a secondary, you know, either my cell phone or my or whatever, an authenticator. It's not easy to even get on my own thing. And I, every day I have to redo it. Every time I go into my, you know, my, my browser, I got to do it again. And I set it up that way. But it seems like this, this person that was working for them didn't follow the same protocols. Or was somebody able to do the double opt-in? Or do the double the double uh, thing? How is it possible? Yeah, well, see, what you're talking about is what's called two factor authentication, two factor, yeah. and a lot of people are familiar with this, where you try to log onto a website and then you'll get this number on mm. your phone, and then you enter those numbers. That's a way to verify who you are, and we're kind of moving towards a passwordless society, George, by using two factor authentication. Provided that you got your phone on you at all times, you should be able to log into any site without having to manually put a password in. But, you know, LastPass is built upon that that protection Mm -hmm. of their passwords. And for a hacker, you have to understand, you get a lot of street cred if you could break into LastPass and Mm -hmm. get into that vault. And that's what a lot of hackers, they do this for is amongst their community, they want to get that street cred where like, look look what I did, you know? And they see it as a challenge. Whereas we see that as like, you know, the end of the world if somebody gains mm-hmm. access to, to all your passwords. But for them, it's not sometimes, you know, it is for financial reasons because they could sell that on the dark web. Mm-hmm. But a lot of these guys, George, they're just motivated to- by the challenge. And companies back in the day used to say when they would, you know, create a website or, or a service, they say, you can't hack into this. It's unhackable. Oh. And that's just a call yeah, to arms really? for every Come hacker on, out there. Don't do that. Yeah. So they don't say that anymore. No, you know, they, good idea. they, they do try to protect it, but, um, I think that might have been one of the motivations of this hacker trying to get into wow. LastPass. Crazy. All right, I want to talk about some other things uh, in this part, and then in the next part I want to talk about gadgets. But this part, TikTok, you know, okay, sure, everybody loves TikTok. It's the fastest growing platform. You know, you look at it, it's aging up to, you know, 35 plus. It's kind of like, you know, Facebook did that too. Um, but what's interesting is how Google's freaking out about TikTok, and TikTok is doing all sorts of things to take on Google. Can you tell us a bit about that and how that works? Yeah. So a lot of people, I think, they're familiar with TikTok. It's these these kind of short form videos that people see and a lot of young people use it. And what Google has found in their own research is nearly 40% of Gen Zs. So yep. these are people that are born from 1997 to about 2012. They found that 40% of them are using TikTok for online searches. Wow. So how we used to say, oh, I'll Google that. Yep. Well, the, the young people, they're they're looking for information on TikTok. And, and it's becoming more and more popular amongst them that Google sees this as a threat mm-hmm. because their whole entire business is built on their search engine. And if the young people aren't using it, that, that just shows you that, that you got some trouble down the road. So they are, with YouTube, trying to get into this short form video. They're really trying to take on TikTok, Instagram, of course, they, with yeah, their reels. They've working. been trying to do this. It's not working. No, it's not. And the, the thing about TikTok and what Gen Zs love is the algorithm. The algorithm can really understand the kind of things that you'd like. And they have this for you tab. And so if you show interest in something, TikTok will understand that. Mm -hmm. And it just feeds you a constant Mm -hmm. diet of the things that you're interested in. And that's why people are so addicted to TikTok. George, myself, I joined it and I I learned to jump rope during the pandemic. And I started watching videos on TikTok. Yeah, yeah. And it just it was like, oh, you like this. And it just kept nah, hitting me to the point rope. that I stopped jumping rope. I was just watching people jump rope. So <laughs> I ended up deleting TikTok. I was like, what? that is the most oh. powerful algorithm I have ever experienced. It's pretty scary how it knows you. What I find interesting, though, is it's almost not social. It's it's more like television, I find. It's like you watch it like old school television. It's like television shows, but they're done by you know amateurs. And I, I think that's really interesting. We're kind of getting away from all this conversations and feelings. And it's really there is, you know, you can you can make comments and people do all that stuff. But generally, you just kind of, you know, watch and look and maybe you like it, but it's not as social as Facebook. What I know, and that the, the beauty or, or the scary thing about TikTok is there's very little friction. So once you see one video, the next one comes up. So you really don't have a pause between all of these videos. And so time can just fly by you, mm-hmm. and you don't realize that you've just spent an hour scrolling uh, on TikTok. <laughs> yes. So young, young people, what they're doing is if they are going to a restaurant or to a bar, you know, you and I would yep. go on Google and search it and see what the reviews Local are. Search. Mm-hmm. They're going on TikTok and looking at videos 
videos of people actually in there seeing the ambiance and the vibe of yeah. that restaurant. So the, yeah. the way they use search is very different from older people. And Google <laughs> sees that as a huge threat moving forward. 100%. And that's what I, I find interesting with social media, with these new, with technology, and you must agree, is that you, you never can see what's coming next. You really can't. You couldn't have predicted TikTok. You could, certainly couldn't have predicted that TikTok would be the number two search engine and potentially biting at the heels of Google. Who would have seen that even a year ago? Absolutely. And TikTok understands that they have so much data about the users that in China right now, they are becoming a search engine because there is no Google in China. And they're taking on the the search engine that that is currently in China, because what people are finding is that you could buy, you know, the placement of your search. Mm -hmm. And so TikTok doesn't do that. And young people are now using as a search. So that's their new business Mm -hmm. models. They're getting into the search game. And it could be only a matter of time before they become a viable threat to Google here in North America. George Affleck in for Jill, and we're talking tech, and Andy Barrar is here with me, technology expert, handyandymedia.com. Andy, one of the, the questions, I had, it just, this came out this morning, and I'd only glanced at it really, but uh, Truth Social is getting in some trouble with re- regards to, uh, you know, saying, be, you know, being somewhat, uh, some of the speech on there being considered hate, and that might put them into some kind of precarious situation. Is this an attack on Truth Social or a way to shut down Truth Social from the government, or what's this all about? Yeah, so truth social, truth That's social. That's tough. What is it? Tough. I, I, I struggle saying yeah. it all the time, George. Um, this is the social media platform that was created by Donald Trump, mm-hmm. and it happened in response of him getting banned off Twitter. And so when they built it, they were trying to make it as a haven for free speech, uh, kind of an alternative because Trump, obviously Trump's uh, tweets were getting flagged. But they're having a lot of problems right now because. A lot of people who are posting on True Social, their content is getting shadow banned. Hmm. And that's just that's just when your content, when you post it and it just kind of disappears. And and what's what's weird, George, is it's being shadow banned for positions that are both conservative and demographic hmm. dem, uh, demographic positions. Democratic, so, yeah, yeah. Right wing so, and left wing. Huh. So so there's just a, so much inconsistency right now. And this is supposed to be the platform that's supposed to allow for free speech. <laughs> now, I think what it, this is what I think the problem is. It was kind of just made up like mm-hmm. ragtag team of, hey, we got to create right. this, this new social media platform. So they're using a combination of artificial intelligence to moderate content mm. and and. We all know that that doesn't really work. No. So then you have to have human intervention as well. Yeah. But it is so inconsistent that it's kind of, you know, defeating its whole purpose of being this uh, haven for free speech. And so a lot of people are really getting turned off because there is so much inconsistency <laughs> in the. Co- you never know if what you post is going to make it through or if it's going to just kind of disappear. Wow. And that's why people on both sides of the aisle are getting very, very frustrated with it. Interesting. I mean, Facebook faces this challenge every day, it seems, too, and on the ad side and on the content side, where you're, where did my page, why did my page, page disappear? Or why did my ad not work? Or, and they're, oh, well, the bots did that. You're like, well, can you tell the bots not to do that? But, of course, the bots are the bots, and AI is only, uh, you know, can only do so much. Uh, and, and if they don't have, if you think about the growth of Truth Social because of Donald Trump, staffing that would be impossible to manage that manually or even partially manually. I think the only thing that we could say for, for sure is that anything that Donald Trump posts on there will not get shot. <laughs> that, that will make that it right through point. Yeah. on the top. And then they so screen grab it and put it on CNN. So it's working for him. Yeah, exactly. I've actually, I, I'm not on it, but I've been looking at a lot of the stuff that he's posting on Twitter, ironically, because people are screenshotting it and oh posting God. it up on there. There you go. All right, I want to move on to gadgets real quick. Uh, there was one story that came out this morning, uh, Nintendo and the uh, PlayStation price increase for Canada and Europe and other places. What's that all about? That's a huge increase, I think, 20% or something like that? It's all because of supply chain issues, oh, okay. George. It's uh, affecting everybody. You know, PlayStation, when they came up with the PS5, there was so much demand, but they couldn't meet that demand. Hmm. And it, it became a perfect supply-demand kind of a, right. you know, situation. Shows you the math pe- on supply and demand, if you're ever wondering, yeah. Yeah, and what was happening where people were creating bots so that as soon as one of these things were available online, say on Walmart or Best mm-hmm. Buy, 
it would automatically get flagged. Someone would buy it right. and then they would try to resell it on Craigslist oh. or on Kijiji or Facebook Marketplace. So hmm. that the supply issues have now resulted in just higher costs to make the, the devices for shipping. And that obviously that trickles down onto the user. And that's right. why you're seeing. And, and you know what? With back to school, I think a lot of kids need to put the gaming consoles down anyways. Yeah, can so, you tell my kid that? My 14-year-old? Oh my God. I know. It could be a good thing. We uh, turn off the internet at night. I think what we're going to do. Actually, that's a good question. What's a good way to get my kid off? You know, from a technology point of view, let's kind of quickly get into the back to school stuff. I mean, is there something, a tool that I can use to get my kid uh, limiting his time that, that's easy for me to use that he can't hack into? <laughs> So one thing I recommend for all parents, especially as we move to back to school, is you want to get a third-party router from one of these other manufacturers like Netgear. Amazon mm-hmm. makes it with their Eero. But the great thing about these third parties, anybody can set it up with an app. You can create your own Wi-Fi network, your mm-hmm. own password. From there, you can see every single device that is on your network, and you can create schedules. So for your son, you can say, hey, after 11 o'clock, that PlayStation of his is not going to be able to function. It won't be able to connect to the internet. Right. Or he on his iPhone, he can only access Wikipedia from <laughs> 11 p.m. to 3 a.m. or something like that. Okay, yeah. So, he's always on Wikipedia. I hate that. But <laughs> he's well, on, that's, that's, I think at 14, he's checking out some other sites. But, uh, you know. Yes, but you could actually limit on to what sites are allowed and what sites are not allowed. And yeah. at the specific time on a specific device. And if you don't tell the kids and if they're young enough... You you could say, well, I guess the internet's broken or YouTube must not be working. <laughs> and nobody really knows why suddenly the Good internet one. shuts down at 10 p.m. So <laughs> if that's the number one trick I, uh, I like recommend it. parents uh, to take advantage of. I like it. Love it, Andy. Okay, thanks for joining me today. My pleasure, George. Welcome back. Hour two of the Jill Show here. I'm George Affleck filling in for Jill this week and, uh, and next week while Jill fills in for Simi in the morning. So you still get to find Jill. She's in the morning. You just got to get up early to hear her. All right. We've got a great hour here. We got After the break, after the new, news at, uh, at uh, 1.30, we'll have uh, Brian Minter is going to come by and take your calls about uh, gardening. It's always popular segment and we'd love to hear from you and your questions. I have questions that are usually related, related to how did I kill this plant um, and why did I kill this plant and what do I need to do not to kill a plant. Uh, those are usually my questions for, for, for Brian. In our last hour, we're going to be talking books because uh, our book segment every week comes up uh, here and we want to talk about books and we're also going to have a little surprise for you and, and conversation about some specific books that maybe our team are, are reading and that maybe you want to hear about. In our last half hour, we'll have our, our daily P&E hit. The p and on. We're going to hear about some of the fun things going on there as well as uh, our talk, our buzz line. And I also want to encourage you to call our buzz line, leave a message for us and let us know your thoughts on anything that we're talking about 604-331-2899 that buzz line number three 604-331-2899 leave a message and we'll play a selection of those at the end of the show and here's something i want you to hear gonna be a lot of irate citizens when they find out that they're paying for water that they're not gonna get oh that's all taken care of how much better can you eat what can you buy that you can't already afford the future mr gitz <laughs> the future the future. That's a clip from uh, the, the classic uh, film uh, about co- called Chinatown, about the, the battle for water in the L.A. area, made in the 19, early 1970s with uh, Jack Nicholson uh, and a whole bunch. It was an amazing movie. You should, if you haven't seen it, watch it. But it turns out that this film was somewhat prophetic. It, was, it, was, it sort of predicted the future because water, or actually quite often the lack thereof, is becoming one of the world's most important uh, issues and things that we talk about when it comes to climate change. So much so that actually President Biden in the States this week, administered, uh, he imposed deep cuts to water usage, usage uh, on the Colorado River starting next year. Uh, after years of overuse and drought fueled uh, by climate change, and un- as this has led to unprecedented lo- low water levels that are threatening reservoirs and hydropower and agriculture throughout the West. But what does drought in the U.S. mean to uh, you know us or in British Columbia or anywhere else, or drought anywhere else in the world mean to British Columbia or Canada? To discuss this, we're joined by Dr. Kai Chan, professor at the University of British Columbia and the Institute of Resources, Environment, and Sustainability. Hello, Dr. Chan. Hi, how are you, George? Good. Look, this Biden decision is clearly uh, serious. This is, how, how serious is this Colorado River? It's, uh, it's as serious as it gets. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, not being able to have enough water so that uh, 
you're cutting the use finally after millions and millions of dollars going into lobbying and having, you know, I don't know if you've seen the, the pictures and the videos, mm-hmm. but seeing parts of the reservoir that people haven't seen since the 1930s. Yeah, I saw those this that, week. That's just crazy. Absolutely. And, you know, they, they touch on the fact that it's not just about, you know, quite a few people will jump to drinking water or not being able to water ski or things like that. But this is, has, this is existential. This is much beyond the basics. Oh, yeah. I mean, water is needed for so many things. I mean, a, a lot of water is needed for our oil and gas production, for example. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, more closer to people's hearts and daily lives um, and, and more apparent to them is water is necessary for agriculture. So water is absolutely necessary for our lives. And a lot of our food comes from these parts of the U.S. where now they're going to have to adapt the food, how they are producing food as a result of these restrictions. You know, and, and there's so many connections then that open up between our lives and the droughts that are happening all over the world. Mm-hmm. All over the world. It's when you look at those pictures and you see what's happening and you see a movie that was made in the 1970s that kind of was about this subject in a way. It was about control of water and, and it was more like a mafia kind of tone to it. But um, but it was really looking at this as a commodity and and uh, and that seems to be where we're heading. The understanding that water, especially fresh water, uh, is a commodity and we need to treat it like that and think about you know how policies are developed and how we control the use of it and the, where it goes and how you know how all the other start stuff that's related to climate change um is it too little too late is what biden's doing too little too late well probably you know yeah. but uh but it's also not the last of the action that we'll see so i'm i'm sure we'll see a lot more you know and thinking about water as a commodity is tough right because mm-hmm. water is also a fundamental human right mm-hmm. um, And because of the dynamics of water as it flows around the planet, climate change is showing that it's not the kind of commodity that you can hold and store in Mm -hmm. the ways that you might have imagined, right? So water rights in the U.S. or along the Colorado River, those have been set for decades based on expectations of how much water was going to be available based on historical climate patterns, right? right? And now that we've got climate change wrecking all of our expectations, all of a sudden we're realizing that, you know, those rights to water that used to be coming every year, they're not very useful in a world where the same patterns are just not applying to the future. So what do we do? How do we predict? If you can't predict, obviously climate change, you can't predict it, but there are some models that are saying this is what's going to happen. And we're seeing it in real time uh, as far as the storms and and, and the, all the stuff and the ice flows and all that stuff. Can't we predict what rivers might dry up and which ones will overflow? Yeah, to a degree. Um, you know, the, the, the climate models are, have been really good at predicting overall global trends. The, they're not so good at predicting which parts of the world are going to warm how much and mm-hmm. which parts are going to lose moisture, rainfall, and, you know, and which parts are going to have that rainfall fall in a more intense way over a shorter period of time, right? Like all of those right. really regional patterns are, are much harder to predict. We, what we can predict is that overall, globally, more regions will be exposed to drought stress. And and what we know, moreover, is that that's going to mean a a real challenge to agriculture Mm -hmm. and to food prices, which we're already struggling with, with with the inflation associated with both the war in Ukraine and uh, and COVID before that. Way back in the uh, 80s, when I was young, I was traveling, lived in Israel, lived in the Jordan Valley, worked on a moshav picking tomatoes uh, in the middle of the desert. I was in the middle of the desert picking tomatoes because they'd found a way to uh, create, create uh, this, these farms in the middle of the desert. And they were you know, innovative at that time. I'm sure things have come a long way. Is that the kind of stiff stuff, certainly in California, they need to look at as what you know, in that case, there was more. It was more political that they were putting these moshavs there than it was agri- agricultural. Although they were very, very successful, um, but innovative growth, growing of agriculture is that where we have to go? Or if we can't solve the water issue, certainly those areas, and they can't get access to water, then what do they do? There's absolutely a really important role for innovation in terms of enabling farmers to use less water or to use it more wisely. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, you know, the same kind of dynamics of like, isn't it a wonder that we can grow food in the desert? Like, mm-hmm. that's actually exactly the thinking that produced the current crisis in the Colorado River, right? 
this notion that, oh, look, you know, lots of people want to live in the desert. All we need to do to make mm-hmm. that happen is to trap some of the water that flows through this uh, through this system and to use it for like agriculture and also human settlement. And that's what's given rise to the to the massive expansive population in the American West. Mm-hmm. Um, and the truth is, it's just not that sustainable to have large centers of human populations and agriculture where you don't have a lot of rainfall. And, right. you know, and so we're, we're seeing some of the downfalls of that thinking mm-hmm. itself. But, you know, th- th- that's not to say that there isn't a crucial role for innovation. Um, mm-hmm. It's just that it, it, we have to have some smart planning as well. George Affleck in for Jill today and all next week. And I'm speaking with Dr. Kai, Dr. Kai, Chan, Dr. Kai Chan from UBC. He's a professor of uh, resources at the, in the Department of Resources, Environment and Sustainability. And we're talking about droughts. The U.S. Uh, is seeing significant droughts. We're talking about, you know, the Colorado River and those areas and uh, the, the significant impact, a lot of that related to population growth, for example, and the fact that Biden, the president there, is saying, you know what, we've got to solve this problem. We've got to put some restrictions on that river. But, you know, droughts are happening everywhere, but there's some areas that have lots of water, and British Columbia is one of those places, Dr. Chan. So where do we fit into the picture of drought and non-drought and water consumption and, and also power and agriculture and all those things? Yeah, in, in so many ways. Um, one of the first ways, as we were getting at before, is in terms of food prices. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're, gonna, we're likely to see a shock on a whole bunch of different foods as a result of the droughts that are occurring, not just in the U.S., but also in China and throughout Europe and in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, the, the second way that you're probably getting at is that, you know, there are going to be increasing pressures put on us in Canada, where at least in some parts of the nation, we have an abundance of water, Mm -hmm. both to sell our water, as well as to produce crops that are more water intensive. So, you know, as as we see farmers having to make different decisions in and around that Colorado River Basin, as a result of the restrictions, just as one example, mm-hmm. we're going to see them probably moving away from water-intensive crops, and and there being a real need for the production of those crops in the places that can that can manage that. Um, so that that's one thing that you can expect to to affect Canada, and and you know potentially there's some room for a silver lining there, where some parts of the of the country might be able to produce higher value crops and mm-hmm. or have those up crops be priced higher on the market. Um, but, you know, like I, I think about this in terms of lots of dependencies that make me concerned because, mm-hmm. you know, the current restrictions really apply to the use of surface water. And in lots of places, they both have a lot of use of surface water. So water that lands, you know, on the surface of the land and then flows through rivers into reservoirs, et cetera, and also groundwater mm-hmm. that people tap into with wells, you know, yet those aquifers that occur below ground. Right. And, and in lots of places, we have situations where if you don't have a strong leader who, like as Biden is exercising leadership now, to say, look, we've got to actually change our action and use less, And what people tend to do is they switch from using the surface water to using groundwater more intensely. And unfortunately, in lots of places, the groundwater is already being tapped into in an unsustainable way. So those aquifers aquifers are not recharging at the rate that they're being depleted, which is a real long-term risk in, in a couple of different ways. Yeah, and I think before the break, I was talking about Israel and being in the Negev Desert, and that's exactly what they do. It's all The Jordan Valley used to be a river thousands of years ago. There's no river there now, but there's underwater river, and they were just pulling a lot of water out from there. And how do you even track how much water you're pulling out? How do you even know how big those aquifers are? And when they are, when those are dried up, you're really in trouble. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the technology to figure out how much water is there is developing and it's pretty good now. The harder piece is to decide to use less in order to enable it to recharge. Mm-hmm. And too often we're, we're just allowing the continued use, even though it's depleting that source and making folks have to drill further and further down with no real solution in sight as to what do you do? And that mm-hmm. is completely depleted. Um, and so obviously that presents some real long-term risks to, to food production and to so many other things that we absolutely will be exposed to just because of the nature of global markets for food. 
In Vancouver and in the region, we've always been this issue of water because we live in a you know a rainforest, but then we have water restrictions and lots of water restrictions. And then we get some summers that are drier than others, and we have to worry about that. But generally, you know, our water reservoirs are usually pretty full. They don't ever go empty. Um, if we have a good snowfall, which, you know, it's, it's, there's this perception, like, why would we need to have water restrictions in a rainforest? Why? Then I ask you that question. Why do we need restrictions here when we have lots of water that just flows on, off the mountains into our reservoirs and on, into our taps? Yeah. Uh, so, so many interesting pieces here. Um, <laughs> so, so the reality is that there are only a few parts of the province that um, have protected the forests and captured the water in order for our use for, for drinking water and, 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 it, and irrigation in this region. Um, and, and that's like, you know, the Coquitlam watershed, there's the Seymour watershed and mm-hmm. the Capilano watershed. And so if you've been up there to the hatchery or the Capilano reservoir where the, where the dam is up there, Cleveland Dam, then, then you've seen one of those reservoirs where we get our water. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reality is there's not actually that much more than our use, right? And so, as you said, like every year, you know, or not every year, but some years it's, it's touch and go mm-hmm. as to whether we're going to have enough. And so, like, it, it, it does seem like this massive abundance. And the truth is that, like, here in Vancouver, for the most part, we are profligate water users. When you look around the world at the, like, how much yeah. on average does a person in Vancouver use relative to somebody in, say, France, you know, it's more than twice as much. And, and, um, and it's great water, too. <laughs> we don't have to buy it in yeah. a bottle, right? It just comes out of our tap. We're pretty, we're pretty lucky. But what about, this may be That's a right. stupid question, but why not just dig a deeper reservoir and you know and protect more water save more water uh yeah well i mean generally people don't dig reservoirs just because it's so expensive so mm-hmm. what they do is they take a, a, a valley right and they flood it mm-hmm. um and unfortunately the, the flooding of reservoirs is actually pretty climate intensive in the sense mm. that what often happens when you flood an area that had vegetation and most of you know, most of these valleys did have abundant vegetation. Then you've got what uh, a kind of um, decomposition that happens that produces methane, which is a very intensive greenhouse gas. Mm-hmm. Such that actually, when you start from nothing, if you build a reservoir for the purposes of hydropower production, then you're actually you're not at all climate friendly, at least for the first few decades while that vegetation is decomposing. So, you know, there, there are lots of reasons not to just build a deeper reservoir. Um, but, uh, but, you know, obviously there are, there are opportunities for us here in BC and we're, mm-hmm. we're not the ones that are experiencing yeah. the most extreme of those kinds of shortages. Just last question real quick, and I'm not even sure you can answer this, but, you know, the geopolitical potential struggles that water may, may create as far as political struggles and strife and rage and anger and war and all those other things that come along when, when greed gets into the, in, in, in the way. Uh, do you worry about that? And real quick, <laughs> that's a big question I know, but like, is that, I don't even know how you get into that with like a whole other section, but we got like 10 seconds. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I do. Um, I don't worry about it in the sense like of thinking, oh, the U S needs more water. Maybe they're going to annex Canada because right. they've got a lot. I don't worry about it in that sense much. Um, I worry about it more in the sense of just like these are such complex problems Mm -hmm. and there are so many different kinds of negative effects, most of which we're usually not paying attention to. And in the face of these collective action problems, it's really rare that somebody actually says, look, we got to do something substantially different like Biden did. Um, So I think it's a good thing that he did. And, you know, like we just need more of that kind of leadership in the face of these challenges. All right, Dr. Chan, I appreciate that. We're out of time, but I really appreciate it. Really interesting conversation. Thanks very much. Thank you. George Affleck in for Jill and a very great little song there that the team picked, but I'm not sure if I'm sad or happy about that song because it means, you know, it's, it's relevant to our next conversation uh, because it's that time of the year again. We're starting to think about the end of summer and the beginning of fall and you're looking out in your garden and you're going, oh, I got to do something. And our next guest is Brian Minter. You know him. You love him. He's a gardening expert, co-owner of Minter Country Garden Store. Our lines are open already. So if you want to, if you've got a question for Brian, this is a very popular segment. So get your dialing finger going. Uh, the number is 604-280-9898. 604-280-9898 for your gardening questions for Brian. Brian, thanks for joining me. 
Oh, George, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Yes. Well, you know, before the break, I'm not sure if you had a chance to listen. We were talking about droughts in the United States and their impact on this. And I read your column on the weekend and uh, in the Sun, in the Vancouver Sun. And, you know, water is a big, water restrictions has a big part to play in gardening, I would imagine, right? It really does. But, but you know, there's such a wide range of plants and the styles of planting today. And, uh, George, you think about all the folks uh, who live in drier climates, as in the Okanagan or in California, and uh, beautiful landscapes. It's just changing the types of plants uh, as the weather cycle changes. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we're quite able to do that. And, and uh, George, I think the, the one thing is we need to stay within our water restrictions of our communities. Uh, that's very, very important. So it's uh, choosing uh, how to landscape and, and water differently. Now, I will also take a moment to remind you, remember we had the, uh, you know, a weather event last fall with the, uh, you know, the rain, significant rain. Yes. So, so it, it seems that our summers are getting a little bit warmer and drier, uh, but our falls and winters are getting a little bit wetter. So versatility, I, th- I think, is probably the, the big thing to keep in mind. So, um, it, you know, that's very important. Uh, speaking of, of which, uh, we we're all looking for something fresh. And I love your comment about is at the end of the season, where are we going? We're in a transitional period right now. And most of us need that little bit of a pick-me-up. And uh, it's the only time of year, George, that we can actually get in our garden. They've just arrived in garden stores from Europe are the fall-blooming crocus. Now, the most mm-hmm. famous of these, uh, of course, is the saffron crocus. And the saffron crocus is the crocus sativus. You plant them now, and the crazy thing is they bloom in about a month. And uh, the interesting wow. thing is these uh, little, the, the little yellow anthers uh, in these crocus, it takes about a thousand of them to make one ounce of saffron because the spiced saffron, this is the only way you can get it. And uh, so uh, they're not expensive, uh, but they're wonderful to have in your garden. But each year they will come up and give you this wonderful display of color. And if you choose to make saffron, uh, you know, uh, you can collect the anthers. But huh. uh, it, it's a very interesting thing, as well as a whole series of other fall bulbs, the giant autumn crocus. You plant nice. them now, in about a month, they come up and bloom, and all kinds of other unique bulbs. And, and fortunately, this is the only time of year you can get them, so you have to, in the next two or three weeks, if you want to do something unique in your garden, uh, this is the time to get these very unusual and very unique bulbs. And uh, in every year at this time, you're going to get this fresh uh, burst of color. The heat, though, that we've had, uh, if I want things to last a bit longer, what do, I, what do I do if I want my tomatoes to last until October if I want my runner beans to run a bit longer, what do, what do I do in that situation, given the crazy heat that we've had and the, and the water before that? That's a, that's a really good point. Uh, basically, three things. And, and tomatoes seem to be everybody's first love to have in a garden, bragging rights as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a couple of problems we're having with tomatoes. Uh, number one is they do get that blossom and rot. And it's a simple mm-hmm. deficiency of calcium. Uh, you can buy calcium right now or a very fast line like eggshell lime to put in your soil. Uh, George, and that will quickly get calcium and stop that. The okay. other bigger issue uh, with um, tomatoes right now is as of August 15th, we're into the late blight. And uh, that late blight can wipe out your tomatoes overnight. So no watering the foliage. And when we do get rain, um, you know, just kind of protect the foliage a wee bit. But uh, do watch out for the blight. But your better question was, you know, what about all the heat in, mm. our, in our plants? The big thing is uh, watering. And when you do water, please water in the morning because the plant takes up all that water and uses it to to produce more food, but a thorough, deep watering. And keep the water uh, off the foliage. Only water the roots this time of year. Uh, A lot of our squash, like summer squash, like zucchinis and so on, uh, even the pumpkins for the kids are going to get mildew all over the leaves if you, in fact, uh, you know, water the foliage. So only water the ground, water in the morning, and water thoroughly and deeply. And, George, the other thing is a finishing fertilizer. In other words, uh, we should, we're still in in late August. Uh, It'll be late September. We can still harvest things. So getting something uh, in the ground, I like an organic product like More Bloom at 01010 is really great. Or there's a British Columbia manufactured product called, uh, you know, 10, 15, 19, 19, flower and veg. These are finishing fertilizers. So 
with okay. the deep watering and these finishing fertilizers, you should get all your tomatoes to, uh, to be able to ripen and squash and everything else. They need that now. And George, it never hurts to put a bit of organic matter uh, into the soil. Uh, we love uh, things like sea soil, which are so great. It's organic with kelp and fish meal. Uh, it really helps the plant to tolerate the heat. And that was a really important question you're asked there. <laughs> well, look at me. Like, I know what I'm talking about or something, you which do. I, <laughs> I, I don't. But, uh, yeah. okay, we've got tons of calls. You're so popular, Brian. So I'm going to go straight to calls here. Uh, we're talking to Brian Minter. Of course, you know him. Uh, Laura from Richmond, what's your question for Brian? Hi. My grapevine, I was saying, it looks like someone with a bad hair day. It's gone in <laughs> And can I just cut it back and, of course, keep the grapes going. And secondly, I have volunteer pumpkins that are bright orange now, and what do I do with them? I want them for the kids for photos. Sure, Laura, both good questions. On your grapes, uh, yes. Uh, first of all, if you get speckles or, or sort of bumps on the leaves, that, that is a mite, and good old-fashioned organic uh, garden sulfur will control that nicely. But also, the grapes go crazy this time of year, so take a lot of the excess growth off. Just cut it right off, but make sure you leave leaf clusters uh, around your grapes. Otherwise, the sun will scald them. So that's very, very important to, to be able to do that. So a good cutting back. If you look at the wineries this time, you're, you're doing the same thing, but protecting the grapes. And on the, the pumpkin, yeah, the, a lot of them, because of the heat stress and so on, are ripening early. And uh, leave them in the ground as, as long as you possibly can. Uh, they're going to continue ripening up there. But, but the good thing about, uh, you know, the later squash and pumpkins, they keep really well. So if you're worried about it, um, yeah, rotting or anything, simply uh, cut them off. Make sure you've got a good stem on it. And keep them in a cool, dark place. Those gosh darn things will last uh, well into, uh, oh, uh, gosh, uh, you know, October, November. So they're really good at keeping if you have to get them off, Laura. All right. Thanks, Laura, for your call. And I hope that helped. Uh, I've got Shelly from Richmond. Go ahead. Hi. I'm hoping you can help me. I have a huge problem. The last two years, I've lived in the same place for 11 years, never had the problem. The last two years, I can't, I don't, I'm not sure what it's called. It's like morning glory. It's vine, but with mm-hmm. the white yes. flowers. Yes, I pull absolutely. It out. And, I mean, I can spend every day pulling it out, and I kid you not, I wish it was worth something, because within a month, it's 12 feet high again. And I don't know how it showed up, and it's everywhere. It's all throughout my clematis. What do you do, Brian? A crow dropped a seed in there or something? Is that what happened? I empathize, Shelley. I've I've done that whole thing myself for years. but, But remember, this is always the deal. Uh, for us, it's a nuisance. For them, it's life and death. So they're more tenacious than we are. And the three things you have to do. Number one is find the mother clump. There's, they always source uh, out of one particular spot. If you can find that one major clump, dig it out and get it How out of the know? ground. How do you know what that looks um, like, Brian? You, you see, uh, that's a good question. This is where you see uh, multiple vines coming out of one location. Or trace some of the ones you have back to where they start. That is another good way to find that. When you get there, dig it out to get as much out as you possibly can. That weakens the plant dramatically. And from there, it's going on to the other ones. But, but Shelley, the thing is, you've got to keep at it. Every time you see one, uh, you know, go back and, and dig it out. Uh, you can't turn your back on them you know, for a couple of days. That's really important. And, you know, for, for a lot of people who are concerned about it, there, there is a, a pest control um, called Roundup. And by the way, Health Canada sent a letter to the landscape industry in Canada saying use as directed is safe for Canadians. So there is Roundup, which is translocative. You spray it onto the foliage. It will go through the leaves into the stems back to the main stem. So using that carefully uh, and as directed uh, on a regular basis, that will help you. But the, the important thing is sometimes, too, when you just can't get at it, taking some black plastic and putting it over top of the area and uh, simply putting some mulch or whatnot on top so it doesn't look bad, uh, where you just simply can't control, that will stop it in its tracks. So right. you just have to be tenacious, Shelley, honestly. <laughs> yeah, Shelley, I hope that helps. Otherwise, it's just exercise, I suppose, just pulling those things yeah, It's out. great exercise, <laughs> it's great George. exercise, Excellent. but frustrating. <laughs> okay. uh, we got Rob from uh, Oliver. Thanks, Shelley, for your call. Rob from Oliver, go yeah, ahead. Thanks for taking my call, guys. Two questions. Now, transplanting a rose bush. I have to transplant a rose bush. Uh, yeah. It's about two years old, and I'm just wondering the best time of year to do that. And does the same apply to, like, I have a California privet that I do water the foliage, and I notice yes. there a lot of the leaves are turning brown and brittle. Um, yep. Maybe I shouldn't be watering the foliage. Yeah, Rob, that, that is a good point. Uh, they can get mildew at this time of year as well. 
but uh, again, always watering the soil. It's the most efficient way to to be able to you know keep that uh, water into the ground, and that's uh, that's the way to go. But keep it off the foliage, especially this time of year because it's so humid now. But getting back to your rose bush, I'm going to say wait until about mid October would be an ideal time to be able to do that. And if I'm going to uh, transplant a rose, I'll cut it down to about 12 to 15 inches. Uh, so I've got something manageable to deal with. Uh, then I dig sort of a trench around it, exposing a good root ball. But, Rob, I always have my either a container ready to put it into or another planting hole uh, where it's going to go, ready to go, so I can carefully lift it up and move it then. If it has a bud union or graft on the bottom, make sure you bury that uh, just below the ground because it makes the, the you know, the you know, the problems we're having with cold winters, it makes it easier for them to get through those cold winters. But um, And use like a liquid startup once you've planted them and watered them in a liquid starter fertilizer. That gets those roots active and going right away. So late September, early October, ideal time. Make sure you strip all the leaves off the plant so it's completely dormant. And Rob, you'll have no trouble uh, transplanting that rose. I hope that helped, Rob. Hey, Brian, does that go for trees as well around the same time if I want to replant or move a tree around the same yeah, time? Yeah, good question. All the broadleaf plants and the evergreen plants, uh, that would hold true. Late okay. September, October, the nursery start digging. But your deciduous trees, fruit trees and yeah. shade trees and, and so on, you must wait until mid-November when the leaves are off, then they're dormant and much easier to move, George. We've gone full hippie today on uh, on CKNW here on, on George Affigan for Jill and Brian Minter's my guest. We're taking your questions. Uh, he's our gardening expert, uh, co-owner of Minter Country Garden Store, and we've got lots of calls here. The number is 604-280-9898. Next caller is Wendy from Surrey. Your question for Brian. Hi. Um, I want to plant Russian red garlic this year, and I'd like to know when is the best time to do that. All right. There we go, Brian. And, you know, Wendy, that's really smart because uh, the Russian red garlic seems to be one of the most reliable varieties. There's lots of them out there, but that's one of the best. Uh, first day of fall is a traditional time to plant it. But, Wendy, I have to say with the rain and everything we had last year, you need to plant them in raised beds. Absolutely crucial. Our neighbors grow it commercially. Uh, their raised beds are about two feet deep. Uh, but let me tell you, last year it made a difference. So it doesn't have to be that. I would say eight or ten inches if you could berm it up or you would plant in a raised bed with well-drained soil with all the you know fall rain we're going to get. And uh, no, but uh, to answer your question, the uh, first day of uh, fall would be the best time to plant. All right. I hope that helped, Wendy. Uh, we've got Lorraine from North Delta. Your question for Brian. Yes, hello. I am. I just sold my house, but I don't have to move till the spring because I'm renting back. In okay. the interim, I want to give away uh, my perennials. So let's say mm-hmm. my hydrangeas, my lavenders, and my sedge. Mm-hmm. What's the best time? Should I do it in the fall or should I wait to just before I move in the spring to give them away? Good question. Hey, Brian, we only have about 30 seconds, so you got to keep it short. Sure. And, okay, yeah, I, I, all of those that you mentioned are hardy in our region here, so I would do it in the fall. Um, hydrangeas, we, they're deciduous, so if you can wait until the leaves are off, uh, and then it's a great time to do that Any, all through the winter until the end of February. Uh, your grass, uh, of course, I would say late September would be absolutely ideal. And all the other perennials, uh, yes, late September, early October, absolutely perfect time to get them, uh, get them someone a chance to get them reestablished in a new location. That would be my first choice. All right, Lorraine, I hope that helped. Brian, I thank you for joining me today. There's so many people calling in. I'm going to lobby to get you back next week because I think right now, because <laughs> okay. yeah, I think people anyway. are really thinking about this uh, right now, the end of summer and beginning of fall. So I appreciate you joining me. Thank you so much, George.